Hello and welcome to the Sitcom Club with myself, Mooncat, and Ocho. Hello. Before we begin with today's topic, we just wanted to mention about the very sad passing of Bob Larby a few days ago. Ocho, we've talked about Bob Larby and John Esmond on many an occasion over the past year, and I think it's fair to say that their work not only stands the test of time, but I think it's also slightly underrated in, in many ways, and... They've got such lovely depth and characterization in shows like Ever Decreasing Circles and The Good Life. Yes, I think for a while they were undervalued as being purveyors of a certain kind of middle-class fluff, as if that was a bad thing. But over the last 10-15 years, certainly Ever Decreasing Circles underwent a reappraisal. And I think now even The Good Life, which for a while was used as an example as a cosy middle-class BBC sitcom all's right with the world laugh track kind of thing. Even now, people are looking at that and saying, well, yes, it's cosy, but it's extraordinarily well put together. But even the accusations of being too middle class don't hold up if you start looking at police, sir, and get some in and brush strokes. They went all around society. The body of work is such, Esmond and Larby together and Bob Larby alone, we will definitely be looking at more of their work on future sitcom clubs. Yes. I wanted to mention... In addition to the obituaries that you'll have seen in the newspapers, there is a very nice blog post which I recommend on James Carey's blog, which is sitcomgeek.blogspot.co.uk. It's by a writer called Jason Hazley, and he discusses having written to Bob Larby a few years ago and then met him for lunch shortly thereafter. And it's full of really interesting little bits and pieces, some lovely little anecdotes in there about the development of shows like get some in, some bits and pieces in there about ever-decreasing circles. The bit that really stood out for myself, and I suspect it was just the same with yourself, Ocho, was he told me that Richard Briars and Peter Egan would still phone each other up in character. Hello, Martin. I thought you were going to mention the stage direction, which I'm not sure we can mention in the PG era. Ah, yes. We'll we'll, we'll leave the stage direction for the benefit of readers. Yeah, that is (laughs) a particularly good little piece. And one last thing I just wanted to mention. You may have been following Ever Decreasing Circles on BBC4 recently, which has just come to the end of Series 2. The UK TV channel Drama, which is not only on satellite and cable, but also is on Freeview as well, Freeview Channel 20. They have, if you listen to the show on Days Gone Out Wednesday, then just a couple of days ago they've started to repeat Brushstrokes, which is, of course, Larby and Esmond, and a show which occasionally got repeated on UK Gold in its early days, but I don't think it's been really seen a great deal in the past 20 years or so. Have a good look at that if you're interested in more of Bob Larby's work. It'd be lovely to see ITV Free or someone like that also show a fine romance. We were just talking about this off-air beforehand about how that's a Bob Larby solo project as well. But I mean, you're saying that the work has stood the test of time. What better proof is there than brushstrokes and ever-decreasing circles being shown not as a tribute, they're just being shown because broadcasters think people want to watch them. Yeah. So moving on to today's subject in hand. I do think, Ocho, that we have indulged ourselves in the last few weeks with quite a bit of, I suppose, I'm struggling to find the right word. I'll I'll go for um, tat. For example, all the films that Boggs and I watched, some of the sitcoms that DCT and I watched in 1989, and some of the jokes in Take a Letter, Mr. Jones. Yeah. So I think that this week we ought to have some nice comfort viewing. I think that we need to pull a DVD off the shelf that we know is going to be good. So what did we pull? What Are you making it sound like this was a spontaneous thing? It's actually something that we've both been watching independently of each other. It was a bit of an oddity, actually, because we didn't plan this. We started watching this, but we didn't actually start watching it with the sitcom club in mind. What happened was that Gold started showing these. They had a Ronnie Barker weekend a few weeks ago, and they showed all of these in the space of one weekend. And I asked you to pull out your DVD because I could see some edits had been made in one episode here, and so you then checked against your DVD and so on. And before we know it, we've seen all seven episodes. It seemed like the obvious thing to talk about today, and we are referring to Ronnie Barker's 1973 vehicle, Seven of One. Not the first time he'd done something like this. He'd done similar things previously for London Weekend and Rediffusion. Mm -hmm. Six Dates with Barker is one of them. And the Ronnie Barker Playhouse, which is 1968, so it's going to be one of the last Rediffusion productions. Ended in May. Now, July was when Rediffusion shuffled off, wasn't it? I think that... 
out of Six Dates with Barker came The Odd Job, which later was made as a big screen presentation, but not with Ronnie B. And also Clarence was piloted in Six Dates with Barker. In the Ronnie Barker Playhouse for Rediffusion was The Incredible Mr. Tanner. Ah, of course, yes, 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 which was remade later on, but ten years later with Brian Murphy and with Roy Kinnear, and had the misfortune of going up opposite the first series of Heidi High. Also, one of the things piloted in Ronnie Barker Playhouse went on to become Harkett Barker. So it's interesting picking at these things and seeing which ones went on. Oh, of course, possibly the most famous thing to come out of Six Days with Barker would be the Phantom Rescue Blower of Old London Town. Now, what form did that take? Was that a single episode or was that... It was a single episode that then became a two Ronnie serial with added material by Ronnie Barker. And I think it works very well because you have Ronnie Barker's... Seaside postcard, straightforward sauciness, and the tension between that and Spike Milligan's flights of fancy and strangeness. It it works better as a two-runny serial than it does as a single episode. I think it's twice been selected as the go-to serial. I remember 86 through to 88, there were 20 and then 21 and then 22 years of the two Ronnies. And I think I'm right in saying that as part of the 20 years of, they chose... Phantom Raspberry Blower for their weekly serial, to repeat. And then to Ronnie's sketchbook, 2005, and again. But edited down. Yes, yes indeed, because uh, time constraints and all that kind of lark. So when we come to seven of one, three of which then go on to become series. I think we could, shall we gloss over the ones that, be, well, two of the ones that became series. Should we gloss over a little bit? Yeah, well, let's, let's address them straight away, because I think they'll be the ones that people are most familiar with. The obvious one to start off with is one which didn't originally have the name that it would later be known as. It was known in 7 of 1 as Prisoner and Escort, and that of course became Porridge. The interesting one with that one here, and a couple of these, is you don't really get the concept fully formed, just ready to go. The characters and the gags are there, but the situation is the end of the episode. It doesn't start with Fletcher in prison, it starts with Fletcher being transported. That makes it sound like he's sent to Australia. You know that there is a tradition in some parts of continental Europe on New Year's Eve for people to watch Dinner for One with Freddie Frinton. Yes. Something that's never really taken hold in the UK. Well, I think that if it was up to me and I was in charge of BBC Two schedules, I would say that Prisoner and Escort should be Britain's New Year's Eve tradition because it's set on New Year's Eve. Yeah. And I would love to see that in the early evening schedules each year. And as you say, I mean, it's funny because in the three principal characters, you've got Fletcher, you've got Prison Officer Mackay, and you've got Prison Officer Barraclough. And their characteristics really don't change a great deal when it comes to Porridge the following year. It's more about, as you say, the situation and about how he actually finds himself there. And later on, we'll touch on one of the shows that Ronnie Barker thought would become a series, but he didn't actually think that Prison Oscar would become a series. I can kind of understand his point there. If Porridge the series had never happened, I'm not sure you could entirely extrapolate from that pilot exactly what the series was going to be like. That's rehashing one of my earlier points, I know, but it's worth rehashing. Because a few of these are like that. In fact, let's look. One of them's definitely not a pilot, thank God. <laughs> We'll come to that later on. I'm going to say that the Prisoner and Escort and another two are not ones that give you a full sense of what the series is going to be like and what emphasis they're going to put on it. And the other three just kind of spring out fully formed. So, yeah, I, I, I certainly can see how the series is going to develop, what bits they're going to emphasise, and one of these just shouldn't have happened. Okay, well, we'll come to that one later on, but the first two episodes of Seven of One were those that actually became full series with Ronnie Barker. So Prisoner and Escort was episode two. To begin things off on the 25th of March 1973 was Open All Hours, which of course did retain its name for the series. Unlike Prisoner and Escort, which became Porridge one year later, Open All Hours had to wait three years for its series. And there is a cast change along the way because Sheila Brennan, is Nurse Gladys Emanuel in this pilot episode. We also see Eufa Joyce in the role of a customer in the shop. But otherwise... And Keith Chegwin. Ah, yes, yes, indeed. Credited as Boy Buying Lolly. But otherwise, it is Ronnie B and David Jason. 
and I suppose that you would say that what what can we say is is sort of different about I was... the shop is dingier. It's a more oppressive looking location, and I'm glad it brightened up for the series. That was one of the problems you had with the gaffer when I was a kid. I always thought that the gaffer was about fifteen minutes long because everything felt so cramped. I thought the series itself must be cramped. I don't understand why this is, but I've seen Bill Maynard in enough things to know that this wasn't his regular delivery method. But for some reason in the gaffer, he's constantly tripping over his words. He's got ums and ers and all sorts in his dialogue. And if you were actually to cut all of them out, you probably would save about five minutes (laughs) per episode. I don't know why he adopts that. I mean, I'm only talking about series one. That's all I've seen of the gaffer so far. Maybe that changes later on, but I actually found that quite irritating. And I can talk because breaking kayfabe. There's plenty of ums and ahs in my speech, but dear listener, by the time Ultra walks his magic on the edit, you don't actually get to hear them. More difficult for the gaffer because, of course, you can see him. So if they did lots of edits and you had a load of jump cuts in the middle of an episode, it would look quite awkward. So there's not much to say about those first two. Well, we've we've already tackled up on all hours. I don't doubt at some point we will tackle porridge. Actually. The- when Fletcher's being escorted to the van and there's another prison officer there, it's Ronnie Barker's voice coming out of some other actor's face. <laughs> and of course, Ronnie Barker is the voice of the judge. It's symbolism, I tells you. <laughs> One thing about Open Lowers, it appears that Arkwright and Nurse Gladys Emanuel are not... I wouldn't say... It's not that they're not quite as close. It's that there's this understanding through the series that they are sort of unofficially engaged, whereas they don't appear to have reached that point yet in the pilot. Linda Barron, I think, warms the character up a bit, and Arkwright would like to be warmed up a bit by... Hey. And Granville... Because in the first series of Open All Hours, it is affected by the fact that it's quite obvious that Linda Barron is only a year older than David Jason. As it takes them, how was it, 11 years to get four series done, it becomes less of a problem for Glenis Gladys and more of a problem for Granville, but... Of course, Granville in this episode, I suppose he is sort of the age that Granville's supposed to be. Yeah, he's still, I still think he looks a little old. But yes, he states that he's 25. It's a bit more believable when he's in his early 30s that he might be 25. But then when he's 40 and the dialogue indicates that he's 30. So as it turned out, episodes 1 and 2 of 7 of 1 became Ronnie Barker series. Now, episode 3 also became a series, but in a rather roundabout way. Episode 3 is called My Old Man. To give the synopsis from IMDb, Sam Cobbett is a cantankerous, retired railwayman whose house is demolished by the council, forcing him to live in a tower block with his daughter and her husband. I quite enjoyed My Old Man. So did I. A little point of factuality, My Old Man being written by Gerald Frow, with not a great deal of writing credits to his name. I think it was just My Old Man, one episode of The Kids from 47A, and Young Sherlock. I think he did write something for stage, but beyond that, there's not much I can find out about him. Interesting link there, Young Sherlock, which we'll come to shortly. But this one very much felt like it was a pilot for a proposed series, because you've got the whole situation setting itself up Whereas Arkwright is already in the shop, and he already knows Nurse Gladys Emanuel and so on, yeah, Prisoner and Escort can work as a self-contained story. As it turned out, it was a springboard to a full series, but my old man very much is, here's where Sam Cobbett is, and here he is coming to live in the tower block, and so on and so on. And yeah, it's clearly establishing itself as... There's a lot less bundled up in the concept compared to Open All Hours. Open All Hours, Arkwright is avaricious, Arkwright is sexually frustrated, and Granville is also frustrated in a couple of different ways. You've got three things there. My old man, it's really the tension between the old man and his son-in-law. I'm not saying this is a fault. It's just watching it up in all hours. It's like, ah, I can see what strands are going to get carried forward and going to get start developing. With my old man, it's less obvious. You can't spin six episode story treatments out of that without doing a bit of work. Of course, the work was done because there's 13 episodes of the series. For much I'm saying it's a simple idea, there's nothing wrong with that because it's a simple durable idea. Class clash. Before we get to the series, and we'll explain how that comes about, in terms of the pilot, I felt that Sam and his son-in-law were fairly equally matched in terms of antagonising the other. Because whereas Arthur is constantly sort of rubbishing Sam's old place and saying, oh, look at the nice decor, and we've got central heat in here, and so on and so on, and 
constantly sort of pushing the mod cons, which is getting on Sam's nerves. Sam also is not always particularly complimentary to Arthur, and he doesn't really... He's, he's not really happy about being in this situation, and he sort of takes the opportunity to have a little sort of dig at Arthur every now and then. So I didn't get the impression that I was really meant to feel particularly sorry. I, I didn't see Sam as an object of pity. I mean, we're supposed to obviously relate to the fact and sympathise the fact that he's had to move house when he doesn't want to, but at the same time he's perfectly capable of giving as good as he gets. So he's not put upon, he's not simply in a situation which he's unhappy with and he's got to make the best of it. You get the feeling that he might well have been the same in his old place. He's just been transferred straight across with all of his characteristics intact. You've got some nice little bits and pieces. You've got obviously all the activity in the flat, first of all. And then you've got the scene in the local pub. And in this pilot, the landlord is played by... Robin Parkinson, who I Maybe just... Maybe Patrick. Well, yes, and I actually just saw him the other day surrounded by gnomes. And if you know what that's a reference to, dear listener, tweet us at the sitcom club. Anyway, the scene in the pub, that was an interesting sort of culture clash. Again, when we, we talked before about how pervasive elements of popular culture, they take a little while to get into sitcoms because they've got to make sure they... They've got the attention, the understanding of the mainstream audience. So it can't be something which has just come about in terms of topicality. So, yeah, there was elements of the pub where it's all supposed to be very sort of relaxed and informal. And it, again, it sort of felt a little bit more sort of late 60s, early 70s than 73, I would have said. It was peculiarly jarring. Now, I'm not saying this didn't happen in the permissive go-go world. Of the early 70s, and we're going to be talking about it. It's something that we keep hitting, don't we? This whole thing of the slightly different sexual attitude of the 70s that didn't last. But Arthur goes to this, he calls it a pub, and he starts acting really camp. The barman is a mincing stereotype who addresses everybody as ducky. It just seems strange when Arthur starts joining in. I'm not saying that that didn't happen, but it's not something I've ever seen anywhere else. He doesn't try and become posher or more upper class. He gets camper. It kind of felt contrived in a way. Yes, I know what you mean. I mean, uh, the, right? What what else would irritate Sam? Blocks being puffy, right? Arthur then starts going vodenton. See, it reminded me a little bit, although it's not an exact like flight comparison, but it reminded me a little bit of when Bob and Terry and the Like Lads go to the hairdressers and whatever happened to the Like Lads, I should say. Mm. Whereas Terry just longs for what he considers the the masculine, old-fashioned barbers, and doesn't like this place at all and just treats it with intense suspicion. Bob just accepts it for what it is, and you could say that he... Well, the word hadn't been invented, I don't think, but metrosexual. Yes, yeah, indeed. Well, when they ask him if he wants a manicure, he his first sort of instinct is just to look at his nails and say, no, thank you. He doesn't take a look at Terry and say, now how am I supposed to react to this? Whereas he may have done that, say, sort of 10 years earlier. He's happy in the environment, and he just thinks, this is the environment I'm in, so therefore, yeah. But that works. He's comfortable with the environment, things have changed, men's grooming has changed, the way men talk to each other has changed. He doesn't start camping it up. That's what I mean about it being contrived. It's like he doesn't start behaving in a way that is designed to wind Terry up. Yes, I mean, it's an unusual situation. It's not a scene that I can really sort of picture anywhere else. I mean, you get, yeah, you obviously get camp characters and so on, but yeah, you don't tend to get another character sort of take on their characteristics temporarily. But I can see why it's being done in this instance, because they're trying to establish the antagonism between Sam and Arthur, rather than if it was all Sam towards the barman when they were in the bar, and then Sam towards Arthur at home, then you just are going to get left with the impression that Sam is a pain in the backside. Whereas we're trying to sort of set up this loggerhead situation for weeks to come. Like I say, it had quite a nice sort of twist. It was nice when he saw Leslie Dwyer as a fellow sort of fisher of water, older chap opposite the bar, and they got along famously and so on. Yeah, I mean, it was quite nice, and, and you sort of felt... Like, I'm I'm a little bit surprised, actually, that, that this did not become a full-on Ronnie Barker series. Because I think that there would have been at least one series in it. 
But what happened? I quite like the way it turned out because, of course, the the BBC decided there wasn't a series in it, so it got taken over to Yorkshire Television, and they made it into two series with Clive Dunn, and that changes things. Clive Dunn Sam is gentler. He's definitely more of a pitiable. Is not the right word, is it? Well, this is the thing. He's in the same situation. The the first episode is very much like the pilot in Seven of One, but he seems not just resigned to his old place being pulled down, but he's not. He doesn't seem terribly inconvenienced about moving in with his daughter. He seems sort of pleased to be there. And I got the impression, to be honest, that most of the problems... As we spoke about the other week when we were talking about Maria in Mr. Jones and how all the chaos tends to come from herself, then I was left with the impression that all of the trouble was coming from the son-in-law in the Clive Dunn version. Because Clive Dunn the just son-in-law's seemed... much more pompous. As it's now played by Edward Hardwick. And you mentioned about Sherlock, the and of cam- course, I always associate Edward Hardwick with being yes. Dr. Watson. The campiness is even weirder in that, though, because, because he's more of a bumptious, irascible figure. When he suddenly goes to the bar, it's it's even more jarring. Interesting, it's not throughout there just seems to be one scene where he suddenly starts talking in that dre rain kind of accent indicating that pretension but falling short there is also a north-south divide thing because it was strange hearing clive dunn definitely trying to sound i think he mentions being from huddersfield or having relations in huddersfield it's interesting yorkshire television decided they'd still keep it set in london but as a concession to where they're from but then it changes sam because sam at one point mentions he can't enjoy a good funeral anymore he he takes on he does mention the place they've moved into so he said this isn't one of your north country slums and he said give it 10 years this will be a south country slum so you got a new little addition there and we also have in the series, playing Sam's grandson, Keith Chegwin. So, Keith Chegwin went from being in one Seven of One pilot to being in a different Seven of One series, so to speak. It's interesting how they changed the first half of the story. It's not the Seven of One pilot ported straight across. The first half operates on a different level. So the first half has more running around after his luggage, a little bit more seeing the rest of the building that they're moving into. Second half is fairly straightforward, but it ends with everybody joining in with the Winkle song. (laughs) 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 If you haven't seen it, I'd probably build it up a bit too much. But then the daughter comes to the pub, everybody joins in with this silly song that Sam's singing with his friend, and it seems to end with, ah, Sam has found a place. Come back next week. Everything's softened. The only thing is you see the outside of the pub and, oh, it doesn't look grim. <laughs> yes. Well haunted. <laughs> oh, boy. Sad-looking, grimy brickwork. It's probably only like five years old as a building and it already looks worse than the thing they pulled down. I would have liked them to have broken with normal protocol just for that. And although you've got sort of standard 70s sitcom recording techniques. You've got the VT inside, and then you've got 60mm film outdoors. When they actually went into the pub, it would be nice if it then switched to 8mm film. (laughs) With the colours all washed out. And a shaky camera. At which point does it change into black and white and lose its audio? It loses its audience long before any of that's happened. We'll come back to My Old Man. I think My Old Man deserves its own cast. I'm not hearing agreement. Would, we said something uh, wrong. How, how do you mean? How do you mean it's own cast? How do you mean? I'm saying that oh, one pod, week podcast. Be the sitcom. Club oh, I see. Looks right. At... No, no. Oh, sorry. Yes. No, yes, when you said cast, the fumble's got its own cast. Slang. <laughs> no, we are not down with the kids on this show. I, I'm sorry. Apostrophe. I don't mean to be discriminatory, but we just we don't use youth speak. Well, what? I mean, of course, the cast. Yes, it should have actors who've never appeared in anything else. <laughs> So that we keep keep them pure in our minds. The characters are not sullied by any associations and we can't connect them to Alfie Bass. Well, speaking of Alfie Bass... It's not a coincidence. I saw that tweet too. Birdie tweeted us a few weeks ago and referred to us having mentioned Alfie Bass in two episodes running of the podcast. And so she suggested that Alfie Bass could be the sitcom equivalent of Kevin Bacon with regard to six degrees of separation. So I'm actually going to ask yourself, dear listener, if you could tweet us at the sitcom club and tweet us the name of a sitcom actor and then the next time that Ocho and I are here 
for a podcast together, we will go through them. We'll go through the six degrees of alphabet separation and try and make them as, as sort of obscure as possible. Ideally, I mean, it's got to be legit. You can't just pull a name out of thin air and then there'll not be any link whatsoever. But I mean, if you can make it as sort of tough as, say, John Craven or Bert Fjord, who used to do the, the weather on BBC, or, I don't know, Wilfred Pickles, something like that. Or, I don't know, Andropov. That's cheating. <laughs> Just having politicians. No, but it is, you, you've got to actually establish a link. You can't just come up with a name where there was no Alphibas link. Because the, the, the point is that we're trying to prove a point here. We are actually trying to prove that Alphibas is the Kevin Bacon of the sitcom world. So if you can think of a link between Pepper Millet 1's Donnie McLeod and Alphibas, tweet us immediately at the sitcom club and preferably before you finish listening to this podcast. Thank you very much. So the next one in 7 of 1 is Spanners 11. Written by Roy Clark and Meh. Yeah. I didn't feel anything. No. Even though very quickly it establishes two possible <laughs> plot threads to be. I, I quite like how it's a, right. It's about a guy who's a manager of a rubbish Sunday League football team and he's also a taxi driver. I like how in the first five minutes. Oh, yeah. By the way, he has a job so we can see things happening outside the ground that might be funny because taxis, they're funny. We actually did get some supposed 8mm film in Spanish 11, didn't we? Ah, well, there you go. There's not much I can say about this because it didn't really have any great effect on me. You've got a couple of sitcom heavyweights in Ronnie B and also Bill Maynard in this as well. And also quite nice to see John Cater in this who appears in a lovely little sitcom called All Cock and Gander with Beryl Reed and Richard O'Sullivan which is available on Network DVD and I'd like us to review that one day. It's a nice Cook and Mortimer show from 72. But yeah, the... the I didn't really see a lot of scope for a full-on series in this. I think that this is a subject which has been revisited subsequently. I think that John Sullivan had a pilot for a show about a small team football manager, Brian Wilde and George Baker, after Citizen Smith, which it wasn't It wasn't picked up as a series. And occasionally, I think there was a show with Kenny Ireland a few years ago, which was along similar vein. I think it was set in Scotland. Josie's Giants. Are there any really successful football sitcoms? Because I know Prince Among Men is legendary for <laughs> something of a black hole. Prince Among, inverted commas, moved to a less competitive slot, men. Even though, actually, now this, now this is the thing about Prince Among Men. This is what everybody forgets about this. Is that actually had two series. One series did survive in its peak slot throughout. It was only in series two that it suddenly got the elbow and ended up on Sunday afternoons. But yeah, that was that was a show. I think we've slightly got off point when it comes to seven of one. Can you blame us? <laughs> no, but it's football, so you know it's all relevant. Anyway, yeah, Spanish living. Uh, I wasn't too fast. I mean, it's okay. Yeah, it, I think had it gone to series, it would have had one, two series, and then just vanished into the ether. I don't think anybody's going to go, oh, remember Spanners 11? Oh, I used to love that. Let me ask you this. Would you have preferred, as a straight choice, a series of Spanners 11 or a series of the following week's 7 of 1? Definitely Spanners 11. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're not being entirely fair because the next one, Another Fine Mess was not intended, as far as we can tell, to be a series. But who knows? I mean, if things have worked out differently, it could have been going for, I don't know, 15 years. Written by Hugh Leonard, who also wrote Talk of Angels, an episode of the Ronnie Barker Playhouse. Looking at Hugh Leonard's teleography, he seems to have mainly written dramas. None of the titles I recognised were sitcoms. It may be that some of the shows on there were sitcoms that I'd never heard of. Did write a couple of episodes of Public Eye, but they're lost, so... Is this the one that was added at the last minute? Because in an interview, Ronnie Barker mentions that the show was supposed to be six of one, and the plan had been that if it had done well enough, they could have done another one the following year called Half a Dozen of the Other. Now, I, I mean, I've heard Ronnie Barker say that, and I've always been a little bit... I'm not saying that that's, that's not the case, but I've always been a little bit sceptical of that as a title. They're the, the actually just seeing that in the Radio Times, a series called Half a Dozen of the Other. It doesn't look quite right. It sort of reminds me of... Who's that walking across the sky? Or what? red? Well, you know, you know what that refers to. No. That was Dennis Norton's proposed title for "It'll Be All Right in the Night." 
because it's a line that's said <laughs> by the director in this shot of Ronald Reagan in a plane in wartime, and then two of the stagehands walk past, and you can see yes. their shadows. So yeah, that was that was what they were going to call it originally. But I think it was Michael Grade who vetoed it and said no. He wanted something that was uh, a little bit less cryptic. So I know I, I find it difficult to imagine 7 p.m. BBC One half a dozen of the other. But we're not entirely sure. I can't think this was the one that was added. Unless they were suddenly realising that it was a seven-week slot and there were one short, because this one's not intended to be a series. Or maybe it should have been. You tell the folks. You tell the folks about it. I'm too hot. (sighs) Okay, right. What have we got? Uh, We've got this sort of convoluted situation where Ronnie Barker's character, his mother-in-law has passed away and everyone's at the house... Avis Bunnage is his wife, and everyone else is there. And for some reason that we're not entirely sure of, though there is reference to there being... Avis Bunnage says, I was a GI bride. So that establishes that Harry Norville, who is Ronnie Barker's character, is American. And being American, naturally, he sounds and looks like Oliver Hardy. And by the way, the reason that his character is called Harry Norville is because that's Oliver Hardy's real name, Norville Hardy. Now, for reasons that I don't think we ever quite got to the bottom of, his good friend Sidney Jefferson, named because Stan Laurel's name was Arthur Stanley Jefferson, the role of Stanley slash Sidney is played by Roy Castle. You've basically got the situation where the two of them slightly resemble and sound like Laurel and Hardy, and funnily enough, that evening is supposed to be a talent contest in which they are going to portray Laurel and Hardy. And win top prizes. Get kissed by a stripper, isn't that the? Oh, but yeah, there was uh, yeah, and it was Flora Hard, wasn't it? <laughs> that or annoyed called... me. That was one of the many things. She's that called annoyed titillating, me. This... titillating Flora. It's like, why, why not give her a name that properly alliterates? I know Flora starts with a T, but it doesn't. Titillating Tina would have been moderately more amusing. <laughs> well, anyway, Doris Norville, played as I mentioned by Avis Bunny, who we'd later then see quite often in. In Loving Memory, which I'll see her in Rising Damp as well. She's having none of it. She's saying, no, no, you're not going anywhere. Of course, she is portraying, again, the sort of the, the standard Lauren Hardy wife, and such as May Bush, for example. Uh, and so what, what they do, old um, Harry and Sydney. Sorry, did you say that she does portray the average Lauren Hardy wife? Well, she is supposedly portraying the average Lauren Hardy housewife she as isn't. in... She so well, no. isn't. Yeah, That's I'm... part of the problem is that it starts at this post-bereavement do. And all the women are Nora Betty-ish. It's not very Laurel and Hardy. It's more slightly in loving memory. It... Yeah, but what I, what I mean is that in terms of... It's not you I'm criticising here. Yeah, yeah. It's no, everything. No, it's, it's, it's the people who made this and that you start with a non-Laurel and Hardy-ish setup. I'm not saying it has to be an exact copy. I think part of the problem is if you start with that hint... Of Laurel and Hardy-ishness, and then have it become increasingly like a Laurel and Hardy film. That's one thing. But to have a non-Laurel and Hardy-ish setup, and then two characters who are pretending to be Laurel and Hardy, and are pushing it a little bit too much as well, it's like they're on stage. For all that they're readily identifiable and full of little personality ticks, Laurel and Hardy are definitely more subtle than this. Oh yes, yeah. It doesn't start well, and the setup doesn't get you in the mood for I think it's strange things like Sydney's shoving oranges down the toilet off screen it it makes sense if you watch it but don't bother so is that why there is the question about why do you shove oranges down a lavatory which seems jarring as well toilet humor not a very laurel and hardyish thing even though it does develop into a little bit of twisted non-logic that sort of works as a laurel and hardyish gag that's already you know Toilets and funerals and corpses, it's... Well, let's, let's emphasise the corpses upstairs. We don't actually see the corpse. It's not It's not that bad. But, yeah, I mean, this is going to sound ridiculous, but I didn't mind reference to Sydney slash Stanley shoving oranges down the toilet. I would not have wanted to see it, and I'm glad they didn't show it, regardless of whether the oranges were full or whether he cut them up I'm first. not saying it's a disgusting insult to the memories of Laurel and Hardy, how dare they talk about toilets. I'm saying it's just one more thing that distances you from the very thing it's supposed to be reminding us of. I don't actually recall at any point Laurel and Hardy drugging May Bush 
to get her out of the way. That strikes me that's the kind of thing they might do. Especially I don't. I don't have any films. recollection of that. I don't have any recollection of that happening. I can certainly. I can imagine them perhaps like giving her an extra strong tipple to get her tipsy or something like that to sort of get her out of the way so they can sneak off and and make whoopee or whatever. But actually drugging her so she just falls asleep. I, I'm not so sure about that. I go. Oh, I can't think of it. I've got the box set of Lauren Hardy over there on the shelf. I can't recall any particular instance of that. But if somebody knows of that, if somebody knows and tweet us. Okay. And big, the big problem is it's too overplayed. Their impressions are not accurate enough, and as a result, that's where it starts to fall down. Also, this being done multi-camera VT, the pacing doesn't resemble a Lauren Hardy film. You can't cut away to a piece of action. There's a big gag at the end, which involves a series of large consequences to one small action. Now, in a Laurel and Hardy film, because you can cut to shot to shot to shot, that's been a different setup every time. Multi-camera VT, you have to catch it all in one. This has been set up, this can only happen once, and we have to get all the shots absolutely right. And there's another point when Ronnie Barker, as Norval, as Oliver, is trying to do the look into camera. And they cut away just too quickly. He glances into the camera, we don't have any time. I mean, that was always put there in Laurel and Hardy films for pacing reasons. Do you know the best impression of that, which is not really an impression per se, is in Revenge of the Pink Panther, the last Pink Panther film with Peter Sellers. And there was a scene outside the nightclub where they're trying to reach Diane Cannon, who's inside. And you've got Clouseau in a disguise, and you've got Bert Crouch in a Stanley tight bowler, but otherwise they're not dressed as Lauren Hardy. And there's a lovely little sequence where Bert Crouch is holding a pastry in his hand. Clouseau says to him, get rid of that. And Bert Crouch just looks at it for a moment and then just holds it out in front of him as if to say, well, here you go then, you dispose of this. And Peter Sellers just looks straight at the camera and it's honestly, it's absolutely perfect. I mean, it, it's as good as Oliver Hardy doing it himself. And it's such a nice little touch. And I don't even know if it was something that was originally planned or if it's like a little bit of business that Peter Sellers has added at the time. But yeah, no, it's just it's beautifully done. On that point when you said about the impressions are not very good, I don't see the need for any of it. I mean, I used to, back, way, way back in the day, I used to be a member of the Sons of the Desert, Lauren Hardy Appreciation Society. Which tent? I have absolutely no idea. I don't know if I was ever in a tent. I mean, it was a, like a, a postal thing. You know, you sent off and then you got the... Ah, the you were in the Utopia every... tent. Yeah, uh, well, there you are then. Okay, so no, I never actually went to actually went to meetings. But, yeah, well, you get the nice glossy magazine every couple of months. And at that time, you know, pre-internet, it was very interesting. They had interviews with all the different people associated with the films and they would talk about, oh, with this copy has surfaced and this is being colourised. No, like, it was a very interesting little publication. But you always got in this magazine, you always got these pictures of these people dressed up in the Lauren Hardy gear. And I never, for the life of me, understood this. I just didn't get it at all. And I even worked with somebody a couple of years back who was in a local Sons of the Desert 10. And she said, yeah, it's all great fun. It's a great laugh. And we all get up in the gear. If that's what people want to do, that's great. But never, for the life of me, understood it. And I don't see the point in impersonating Lauren Hardy unless you're going to do something with it. Because you mentioned to me, Ocho, when we were watching this the other day, the best person to do impersonation of Stan Laurel in recent times would be Peter Serafinovich. <laughs> yes. And that's partly because he's doing something with it. He's not just doing Lauren Hardy. He's he's actually deconstructing it and then giving it a twist. And also Harry and Paul as well. That did years work previously. For me. I, I, I saw I'd that like, it looked I, like they hadn't actually seen a, a Laurel and Hardy film. No, actually, no, I've got to disagree on that. I, I mean, it was, if you've not seen it, it was basically Laurel and Hardy in Brokeback Mountain. But, so you can imagine what it was like. But it might but, as well no, have been I, Keystone I, Cops. It didn't, it wasn't paced like one. It didn't look like one. Peter Serafina, which had clearly put a ridiculous amount of work getting all the pops and clicks in the soundtrack, the slightly mistimed cutaways, making sure the house looked like <laughs> sort of low-level California houses. Yeah. Oh, yes. No, in terms of in terms of the Harry and Paul version, I thought that they their mannerisms were very well done. I know, I don't think, no, it's not as identical in terms of the overall appearance. But even, for example, Marina Banks playing a sort of Maybush-type character, for me, it all just worked. 
things like that when you do something different with it if there's a purpose to it great but in this it's just Ronnie Barker and Roy Castle just doing a Lauren Hardy routine then it would work fine as like a little sort of maybe a five or six minute skit and a raw variety performance or something like that but not for a full there was half one hour. interesting thing which was them using fire lighters on an electric fire I suppose electric fires might have been a thing in the 1930s but I don't think those fake coal look if you're going to do a Laurel and Hardy parody in 1973, it might be an idea to make gags that couldn't have been done 40 years early. No, don't bother. Because I'm just thinking they did that in 1999, the new adventures of Laurel and Hardy in no. Fall of Our Mommy. <laughs> and it was okay, doing jokes about photocopiers. Not a good joke, but... I've blanked that. Although all I remember about that is it's got the fella from Perfect Strangers in it. That's the only thing I can remember about it. And that's more than I want to remember about it. So, yeah, I know if I miss, it is what it is. It's clearly not going to go anywhere as far as the series is concerned. I don't know. We did come up with an idea of it would have been interesting if there'd just been a different double act every week. Especially <laughs> if one week, Harry and Sydney have to pretend to be the two Ronnies and Ronnie Barker ends up being Corbett. <laughs> Next week, they're going to be Sid James and Peter Butterworth from Bless's house. We haven't quite worked out why. Or just increasing obscurity. This week, Gallagher and Sheen. Hey! <laughs> this week, Lenny and Jerry. <laughs> okay, moving on. One that's pretty reasonable for gagicity. Written by Jack Goetz, which is actually a pseudonym for Ronnie Barker. But this is another one where I can't see what would happen if you had to make another six of these. Yes, one man's meat. So we have... Ronnie B in the role of Alan Joyce, who is married to Brunel Scales, and he's going to go on a crash diet for a day. And Brunel Scales has arranged things, although he doesn't know this yet, she's arranged things to make absolutely sure that he sticks to it. And of course, as soon as she disappears from the house for the day, clearly he has no intention of sticking to it. He goes straight to the kitchen. That's a concept I could put in the file marked contrived, but permissible. It's highly unlikely that even on a strict diet, you was going to say, by the way, you don't eat anything today. Was there a don't eat anything for a day diet in the 70s? Maybe there was. There was one nowadays, isn't there? There's a five, is it called the 5-2 diet where you're supposed to, I'm, for God's sake, don't follow this because I am not a dietitian, so don't follow any of this as advice. to eat for two days, nothing for five. No, no, I think the idea was, I think you're supposed to, it's either that you eat normally for five days and then you sort of fast for two days or you have like something relatively small on the two days, like a bowl of soup or something. But like I say, just don't listen to me. I don't know what I'm talking about. No, you say about the the convoluted plot. Now, it is convoluted but permissible. However, there are some things in here which I would say, obviously, for comedic effect, and I'm over. There's only one thing that made me go, oh, come on. Well, are you, are you thinking the same thing that I'm thinking of? I'm thinking of when he breaks open the egg and there's nothing in it. No, that wasn't the one I was thinking of. Yeah, that was a bit odd, but you could kind of explain that as mental cruelty <laughs> on the part of his wife, that she left empty eggshells. But put back together again. Yeah, she'd left blown eggs, so that it looked like there was a dozen eggs in the kitchen. No, the thing that got me was, didn't he have a tin of spam hanging on a piece of string out of his bedroom window? <laughs> so people yes, walking was, past the yes. house with <laughs> Why is, why is there a tin of spam hanging off that house at all times? <laughs> well, it's for emergencies, obviously. And and this is such an emergency. And, yeah, he's got his book with the banana-shaped hole cut into it. Sans banana, of course, because that's been found out. And he supposedly had a loaf of bread in the light fitting. Do they have a lot of crash diets in this house? Or is this the reason for the crash diet, is they've never been on this crash diet before? And yet, if he's hiding food everywhere in the house, then he really does have a problem. (laughs) I like the idea that it's about Alan's full-on food addiction. And, I mean, they could have taken to ridiculous extremes. He could have said, I definitely put a slice of unsmoked back bacon underneath the carpet just before we fitted it and he starts like tearing up the living room to get to it and realizes yeah of course he he does find it but then realizes it's inedible because it's been there for seven years so this is a bunch of moderately amusing gags about being desperate to eat strung together some of it too hot for television now ah yeah now this is a reason in a roundabout way that we're actually 
talking about this now in the podcast is because, like I say, Gold recently had a Ronnie Barker weekend and they showed the whole of 7 of 1. And I'd already seen One Man's Meet on Gold, so I had an inkling that they'd use the same version, and they did. The number of edits that were in this was quite striking. I mean, like, real full-on sort of scenes all being chopped out. One thing you can't do nowadays, if Jimmy Young is on the radio, so that dates it for a start, because I don't think he's been on for about sort of 13 years or so. But anyway, was if Jimmy, Jimmy Young Young's is on the radio... theme tune? I believe it was. Oh, man, I used it as my own theme tune on Leeds 11 FM about seven years ago without realising. So, for example, Jimmy Young getting on Ronnie B's nerves talking about food. So Ronnie B decides to drown him. By which I mean he puts the radio in the sink and turns on the taps. That got cut. Can't do that nowadays. Imitable behaviour, I think, is how the BBFC would describe it. I believe so. And as recently described with regards to the much-loved, well-remembered children's ITV show Tickle on the Tum with Ralph McTell, outdated racial stereotypes. Where was this mentioned about Tickle on the Tum? The other day, I was looking up some details of Tickle on the Tum, and apparently Ralph McTell tells a joke about tomatoes being redskins and says, oh, they're not cowboys because they're redskins, that kind of thing. So it was allowed to stay in the DVD when they released it, but it had to have a little warning on the label. Now, One Man's Meat, a lot of it concerns Alan ringing up the Chinese takeaway and trying to arrange getting delivery and so on. And yeah, there's just an absolute ton of material in there, but it's sort of slang references about the restaurant itself and the owners and so on that just yeah there's a good deal of this which is he he calls the guy at the other end on he's calling the chinese restaurant he calls the guy a yellow devil but even for example he'll, he'll play on his name and, and just deliberately mispronounce it that, that got edited that got cut so it's and actually it sort of leads to a, a slight disconnect because at one point he's trying to as you say pull his tin of corned beef from downstairs and the next thing you know he's he's on the phone but just that transition's just sort of happened. So, yeah, a little bit clunky, but what can you do? There was actually, yeah, when, when he's called him, he calls him fiendish yellow devil. The word yellow's cut out. And to be fair to whoever's done it, they've done quite a skillful edit where they've had to chop out the middle word, but without having a jump cut, so they've actually sort of slowed down the visuals on the video so that it's not too obvious. And I've seen the same trick applied to an episode of Only Fools and Horses, for example, for the recent remastering. But there's got a lovely little turn from um, Joan Sims later on, and as episodes go, yeah, it's a really nice little single half hour. I don't think there'd be any intention of going any further with it than that, but yeah, it works really well. It's a nice little... And we've also got, of course, um, Dave the Barman as well. Yes, who's also in The Playbirds. With um, that's using life's... the word pornocrat. That's all I can remember. I, there was a clip in a <laughs> documentary many, many about twenty years ago called "Doing Rude Things," which is just about the terrible British sex comedies. Now, pornocrats. That's my impression <laughs> of Dave the Barman. The last time I saw Dave the Barman was he recorded a trailer for Granada Plus to promote their repeats of Minder and it was Dave the Barman and George Layton sat in the bar and George Layton says have you heard Arthur Daly's back and Dave the Barman looks appalled he's a ponocrat well he, I, he should have said that but alas not not in the version I saw anyway but maybe that was the edit but that was also around about the same time that they started re-showing Boone and they got Michael Elphick to stand there in what looked like overcast conditions wearing a cowboy hat to say Boon and Granada Plus. It's concerned of just going, just uh, zooming in from a great distance. <laughs> and going, Boon! <laughs> and no other information. Just between. <laughs> maybe, maybe actually cut into the shows themselves. Anywhere, in fact, they make an edit for taste and sensitivity purposes. It reminds me of. I did watch, I think it was the first episode of the Kenneth Branagh Wolanda. Wolanda? Wolanda? Yeah, yeah. And right at the end, <laughs> this is nothing to do with Seven of One, but I think it's worth sharing. Right at the end, he's standing there with his back to the camera with David Warner playing his father. And the camera zooms from a great distance to their backs. Zoom, 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 zoom. And he kind of turns around and he's looking craggy and Swedish. 
and that's the end. And what I really wanted to happen was, was it to zoom in. And when it really got to the end of the zoom for him and David Warner to turn around with microphones and go, it's raining, man. <laughs> and that's why I haven't watched any more Wolanda. <laughs> Somebody told me a few weeks ago about this film that MC Hammer had made when he was at the, the height of his popularity, so the early 90s. And they said, it's not really what you'd expect. It's actually quite a sort of serious drama with a message. But he does apparently do the song in it. And by the song, you know, she meant, can't touch this, you know, the, the one they always play. And straight away, I'm thinking, okay, serious sort of film with a message. It's going to be one of those sort of Channel 5 afternoon films, you know, the kind of things that they show on, like, true entertainment, that kind of stuff. 35mm soft focus and what have you. And then, right at the end, he just turns and looks at Lens and says, you want to see it, don't you? And then just goes in full and just does that. I mean, and the rest of the cast are just, like, stood there, mouth agape. But, Apparently it's not like that. I have choreography so. worked out as well for David Warner and Kenneth Branagh to put their foreheads together and look right into each other's eyes on the line, she's a single woman too. <laughs> so if you're out there, TV producers... If, if we're going if we're gonna to talk the Weller Girls, then I've got to say, in all honesty, uh, of course I'm a fan of It's Raining Men, who isn't, but I did prefer them as two tons of fun, which was their earlier incarnation. Under that banner, did they do any songs worthy of emerging from the lips of David Warner and Kenneth Branagh? I think not. Well, no, you've got me there. So One Man's Meat. No, but uh, before we get onto One Man's Meat, or back to it, you have actually just reminded me of something. that is, This is sitcom-related, so it's worth a mention. Kudos to whoever was the... I know, of course, the director would have been Alan J.W. Bell, but kudos also to whoever the editor would have been. An episode of Last of Summer Wine that was on gold in the last few weeks. And it concerns... Clegg's birthday and truly has arranged this day out for him at this fancy hotel and coincidentally there's a wedding there as well so a lot of people from the village are all there at once and I caught a glimpse of this and I messaged yourself on Skype and I said, Forahard's not there and I don't know if that came across as particularly cryptic but what I meant was that they had managed to include Forahard in all these shots in this hotel inside and outside when she clearly wasn't there and they, it was really, really skillfully done. I mean, you, you sort of, you saw her from behind, and of course it's not her. And then there'll be like a shot of her where she's supposed to be in like the hotel foyer. And I mean, it, it really looks apart. I mean, I was only sort of aware of it because as we've already discussed before, anytime you see Fuller hard behind the wheel and last of someone wine, then she's not really, so to speak. So it was the same technique that was being used, but it was really well done. And now I'm sort of intrigued to see if there are any other instances of that. I want to see if there is a Christmas special on which they all go to Switzerland, for example, and go for a bit of a ski down the slope. <laughs> and if they've managed to pull that off, then, well, hey, that should have got BAFTA. So One Man's Meat, do you see the, a series in this? And if so, what does it home in on to develop? I don't see a series in it purely because out of all of the episodes, out of all of the episodes in... Seven of one. This is the closest one to sort of Ronnie Barker himself. So he's 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 given scope. He's given free range. He's largely on screen himself, and he's given that full half an hour just to to do his own thing. And I don't know that necessarily would have been a series in that, but it's lovely to see it. And I mean, he's he's doing bits of business when he's on the phone to the takeaway, for example. He's just having a little flight of fancy and what have you. It just yeah, it's really really nicely done, and it's. I mean, you could imagine this in a sort of condensed version as a little sketch with Ronnie B himself within the two Ronnies. I think this gives us the closest will... idea of what he would have played Reginald Perrin like had the original yeah, Pants for that gone ahead. Yeah, good point. Yes, indeed. But I'd like to see it develop where he's struggling with a different addiction every week. And one week it's his pornography addiction. And the, the punchline <laughs> is... Oh, actually, no, sorry, we'll come back to that because we do know that Alan and Marion, the couple in this, do watch mucky movies. That's another thing. I'd mentioned that earlier, hadn't I, about this weird 70s world. They mentioned about that they went to a party and watched a blue movie. Like, it ain't no big thing. I don't know. Well, okay, two things about that. One, I don't know that they specifically went to the party to see a blue movie. I think it was probably just the way the evening was headed after they got through the... I was going to say, no, I was trying to think of one of the little sort of party kegs 
I was going to say Watney's Red Battle, but that was in the pubs, wasn't it? So the other thing I was going to say about this supposed blue movie, how do we know that it didn't turn out like Man About the House? Then they would have said, oh, what about that Popeye cartoon that they all thought was going to be a blue movie and they paid £50 for? They wouldn't. <laughs> so no, anyway, so, so here's the punchline, right? We have the whole episode of his porn addiction and right at the end, his wife's same as this one, like, you know, she serves in the Chinese meal. It's okay. Not... She goes, it's okay. I've got come play with me <laughs> on 8 mil. And that cures him forever of many things, things that were not meant to be cured. Cures him of all desire for humour and interaction. <laughs> now, this is interesting because we've now got two links with the final episode of Seven of One. Although he doesn't corpse in the episode, as he doesn't come play with me, we've got Talfin Thomas. And also, as you mentioned, addiction, the whole premise of the show is that the principal character, and indeed his son, are gambling addicts. This was the one that Ronnie Barker thought definitely had a series in it. This is another one written by Clement and Lefrenay, but he thought that of the two Clement and Lefrenay scripts, this one over porridge had a life in it, and I can't see it myself. It's got the same situation as One Man's Meat. It's like, well, okay, that's the conceit of the episode played out, but are we going to be coming back? This is going to be about gambling every week, because they haven't really given us the second strand, unless they're all Welsh, is felt to be strong enough in and of itself as a comic concept. It's an interesting one. I can sort of envisage it. I can sort of... Yeah, I can imagine more episodes of this. I don't know that the gambling idea, I don't know that would necessarily sustain it throughout. I don't think it's a spoiler to say a character in this dies and it's one of the most interesting sitcom death handlings ever. I won't tell you how. You save it up for when you watch it. But it's a very interesting balance that they, it's not funny but it also manages to be reverent without being mawkish. Yeah, I found it very tastefully done, actually. I thought it was very nicely handled. But you've got here Margaret John, who most people outside of Wales will know from Gavin and Stacey. And inside Wales, of course, she's been in all manner of things, including one of my favourite Welsh shows of all, High Hopes, written by Boyd Clack, who previously wrote Satellite City. Richard O'Callaghan, you'll probably recognise him from a couple of Carry On films. Carry On Loving and Carry On At Your Convenience. And Emrys James, as a Reverend Simmons, you actually see him again later on in an episode of Open Lovers. He is Eli Bickerdyke when Arkwright is getting a new suit to try and impress Nurse Gladys Emmanuel. So I could sort of imagine more of these. I don't know that... I mean, obviously it's not inconceivable, have. but it doesn't really advertise itself. Here are characters, here's this week's situation, and here is the potential for other situations. Okay, I'm going to try and put myself in the position of somebody sort of making a decision about... If you had all these shows laid out in front of you, and you don't have the benefit of hindsight from where we are in 2014, so if you're choosing which episodes to make a series out of. You could be forgiven for thinking Porridge. Well, he's in the Nick now. He's just arrived in the Nick at the end of the episode and prison is a rather grim place and it's not one that's really given to comedic situations. Whereas a fly for a quid well for a start, he's not in prison, so he's <laughs> you know, you've got plenty of places that he can go. I understand of course that claustrophobia and People being confined in small spaces, of course, is a standard sitcom trope, but nevertheless, you can instill that in different ways. But you could say that there's more scope here for the character of Evan to sort of have more adventures, meet more people and do more things than yeah. you could perhaps imagine. And of course, Ronnie Barker then said, around, I think it was around about sort of 15 years ago or so, when he was discussing Porridge, that he had originally envisaged Porridge by the time they decided it was going to be a series, he sort of envisaged it as Bilko in prison. He thought it was going to be much, much stronger in terms of sort of farce and just fast talking. There would be Fletcher always sort of coming up with different schemes and so on and really sort of glossing over the really grim elements of prison, which of course it doesn't do at all by the time it gets into its stride. But you could sort of think that you've got more scope for a character or a series of characters who have their liberty in comparison to 
somebody does yeah, I think just the thing is, is that the writing and acting came together so beautifully for Prisoner and Escort. Not that there's anything particularly wrong with I'll Fly You for a Quid. It just doesn't quite stick in the memory the same way. But overall, as a, a series, it's yeah, it's a lovely piece of work. It would be nice to see Ronnie Barker's ITV equivalents. Well, Six Days with Barker is available on DVD from Network. I should mention that Seven of One is available on DVD. I have it as part of the Ronnie Barker collection from BBC. Possibly two entertain. I'm not sure of the exact nature of BBC DVDs now. But you can get a box set with just all of his BBC sitcom work in it. Looking it up on the internet, four out of the original six Ronnie Barker playhouses survive. However, rediffused material is in a bit of a sticky right situation, so you're unlikely to see that anytime soon. As I mentioned before, you do occasionally see Seven of One turn up on gold. Frequently you see Open All Hours and Porridge on there. If you've got Sky Satellite in the on-demand box set section, there is the three-part documentary, The Two Ronnies Spectacle, from I think last year. Uh, that's available in the on-demand section under gold at the moment. Thank you very much, Ocho, for your time today. And we will be back next week. We'll be delving into the mailbag in next week's show. So, from myself, Mooncan Co, and yourself, Ocho. Leave me out of this. <laughs> That's a good name for a sitcom. Leave me out of this. So anyway, thank you very much for listening. And we will be with you again next week on the Sitcom Club. <laughs>